Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, a successful canola crop needs a lot of nitrogen, which is why nitrogen has A-list status. That same successful crop also depends on strong supporting cast, including phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, and micronutrients. Canola Council of Canada agronomy specialist Warren Ward says farmers will benefit from soil tests, yield history, and economics to determine how much fertilizer their canola needs. Protein is an important component in a person's diet, whether it be animal-based or plant-based. Nationally recognized registered dietitian Carol Harrison says protein has many benefits, but questions often come up on the different types of protein, how much is enough, and are plant and animal-based proteins the same? She will also have some tips for us on how to extend your meat budget a little more. After the break, Warren Ward. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Canola producers know the importance of good fertility when it comes to growing the crop. With me is Warren Ward with the Canola Council of Canada. And uh, Warren, we, uh, we're going to start by talking about nitrogen and uh, its importance and also some other elements that uh, we should be considering. So first of all, let's focus on nitrogen. Sure. Well, I'll maybe back up a step even and, and just talk about for our nutrient management, because I think it does play a big role in in, uh, in the discussion. So if we think about the four R's, again, that's the right source of fertilizer at the right rate, at the right time, and in the right place. And so with nitrogen, that becomes pretty important in terms of, you know, what, uh, what, 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 product are we using and and what is that rate that we're that we're looking at and, and really that's kind of what uh, wanted to focus on today is just talking about what is that right rate of, of fertilizer and and you know with the, when it comes to nitrogen canola is a high nitrogen using crop and so we do want to make sure that we're being as efficient as possible with those nitrogen applications so what would be an appropriate uptake for nitrogen in a canola crop on average? I, I understand that every, every farming situation is different and every field is different, but what is the usual um, recommendation? Yeah, certainly. So there is a, a range of, of uptake and, and removal for, for nitrogen. And as you mentioned, that can depend on where you are and some of your farming practices. But so, uh, and, and actually, we've just got some newer numbers on that that uh, came from some research that was conducted out of the University of Saskatchewan by, um, by uh, Dr. Fran Wally. So, uh, so with regards to nitrogen, the, the new um, numbers that, that we have for that would be for each bushel of canola that you're growing. So on average, we'd be using 2.38 uh, pounds of nitrogen to grow that, that, um, that one bushel of canola. So let's talk about um, the strong supporting cast. And um, as we, we said, nitrogen is important, but uh, finding the right balance of some other essentials. So let's talk about uh, phosphorus. And uh, the, the testing process, of course, is very important. But why is that part important as well? Yeah, so, so testing for, for all nutrients is important, actually. So that's, uh, soil testing is a big focus for us as well, and, and nitrogen, phosphorus, as well as, as the other macro and even micronutrients. Are, it's important to know what, you're, what you have, what you're working with, kind of think of it as how much money you have in the bank. Um, so, and, and with that, too, I mean, you know, we, we do place a lot of importance on nitrogen, but keep in mind, you're only as, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So if you've, 
maximized your your nitrogen application, but you've missed out on say phosphorus or sulfur even, uh, you could you might not be uh, might not be seeing the the value of that fertilizer application that you've made. So it's important to have that balanced approach when it comes to to nutrient management and and phosphorus being another another one that is important for canola. Now, uh, sulfur. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the guidelines for that and um, what what they're finding as far as what canola takes as far as sulfur. Yeah, so similar to nitrogen, uh, sulfur uh, with canola is a, is a pretty important nutrient. Canola is one of the higher uh, higher users of sulfur that in for the crops that we grow. So. So it is important to uh, to make sure that we've got adequate levels of sulfur available for that for that canola crop, and uh, with some of those new guidelines that uh, that we have now, um, we do see that canola, you know, we knew it used a lot of sulfur, and uh, and in fact it maybe is using a little bit more than than we thought was important. So sulfur is a, a tricky one though when you go to look at uh, soil testing for sulfur because it is quite variable across the landscape of a field. So. Even if you've got a soil test that says you're high in sulfur, that could be misleading if you, uh, you know, hit a hit a pocket of high sulfur into your composite soil test sample. That could throw out the the value or the, how much you think you have across that entire field. So even with higher um, soil test sulfur levels, we do still want to see sulfur added for the canola crop just to to ensure that there is that adequate amount across that field. And Warren, touch on potassium. Sure. So potassium is another one where canola does use quite a bit of it, actually. And uh, and but the interesting thing about potassium is a lot of that's recycled back in onto the field. So uh, there's high uptake with potassium, but generally a lot of that gets returned back to the field at the end of the year and doesn't really leave the uh, the field exported in the seed. So. So while it, it does require a fair bit of, of potassium, uh, generally speaking, there's there's uh, usually adequate levels of potassium in the field to, to support canola. And canola is a really good uh, scavenger of, of, of potassium. It's really able to go out and find it in the soil. Now, that doesn't mean that in some cases there wouldn't be uh, deficiencies where, where it would make sense to add potassium to your fertilizer blend as well. So, again, it comes back to that uh, soil testing and, and knowing what you have, what you're working with, so that you can uh, determine what rates are appropriate for your fields. Warren, can you talk about micronutrients and maybe mention some of the ones that uh, probably come up most uh, often when we're talking about canola production? Sure. So, so micronutrients are just as important as the macronutrients. Uh, the biggest difference there is micro. They're micro for a reason because the the crop is using less of them to 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 uh, to grow. So, uh, while it is important for them to to be there, they're just needed in much smaller amounts than those macronutrients. Uh, one of the um, micronutrients that receives the most attention with canola would be, would be boron. And uh, boron does have some important roles to play within the crop, especially at flowering timing. Um, but uh, again, generally speaking, we don't see a lot of boron deficiencies in our in our canola fields. And, and that's really because of the, the micro amount that is required to grow the crop. Uh, but again, if there is uh, certain soils that are uh, sandier or some of those gray wooded soils, uh, there, there can be, especially with some of our growing yield targets as well, that uh, that there could be instances where where a, a boron application could be beneficial. But uh, more often than not, uh, a lot of boron applications that are made in the prairies really aren't aren't necessary. 
The University of Saskatchewan um, has recently updated the nutrient uptake and removal guides for 14 annual crops grown in Western Canada. Can you explain a little bit about uh, why this information is important and how uh, producers can use it? Sure. So th- this is really good information for, for producers and agronomists who are making recommendations on, uh, on some of the, uh, the, the results that they're seeing from soil tests. And, and really, I think this was long overdue to, uh, to have these numbers updated because the, uh, the ones we had been using before this, uh, this recent research were, were getting quite dated and, and not necessarily with uh, re- reflecting the current farming practices and and even the uh, the varieties that we're growing these days. So having these numbers does give us a better opportunity to fine tune that right rate that 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 uh, fertilizer that's required to grow these canola crops. So if we take that and combine it with an appropriate yield target, um, we really can start dialing in that uh, that fertilizer recommendation. And I think it's important too, keeping 4R in mind, of course, but uh, as farmers are finding it tougher to uh, acquire land or to rent land, it comes down to production could be increased by following some of these guidelines, soil testing, and uh, being able to produce more canola on the land they have. Certainly, yes. There's there's great value in that, and uh, and and we know that you know the more <laughs> it stands to reason, right? The the more canola you're growing per acre, the more profitable that you will be. So, uh, really, four R just is one of the tools that can help um, help ensure that we're being as efficient as possible and and achieving those yield targets that we're setting. Uh, but the other thing I like to point out, much like the the four R's are all related to each other, and you know can compensate or or uh, or account for for differences in some of the practices. Same with the other general agronomy practices uh, that we use to grow canola as well. Something as simple as timely weed removal or uh, you know uh, seed placement. These these are all things that uh, you know you're only as strong as your weakest link again. And and if you've got an excellent nutrient management plan, but you're you're lacking in some of your other uh, other agronomy aspects, you're, you're not going to see the benefit to having to that um, that good fertilizer plan. So it really is important to to uh, not just focus on one thing, but really look at that big picture. Warren Ward is the Canola Council of Canada agronomy specialist for southeastern Saskatchewan. After the break, protein plays an important part in a person's diet, whether it be animal-based or plant-based. Registered dietitian Carol Harrison will have more on the different sources of protein available and our daily needs and how they change throughout our life. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Protein is an important building block in a person's diet, whether it be animal-based or plant-based. Carol Harrison is a registered dietitian. And Carol, talk about the benefits of protein in our diet. A lot of us would probably say, well, for muscles, of course, for growth, growing kids, pregnant women. But they might not realize that protein is actually a major part of every cell. And so what that means practically is that it makes up 50% of our bones, for example. It makes blood and antibodies too, important for staying healthy. And it's a major building block for brain and nerve structure. So those are just some extra ideas for why protein is so incredibly important in our diet. And the good news is there are so many sources of protein available for us. We've got fish, we've got dairy, we've got beans, we've got nuts and seeds, we've got beef, turkey, poultry. They all come with a whole variety of different kinds of nutrients. So eggs are great for choline for brain health, 
fish for omega-3s for heart health, beans for fiber to help you know, our gut stay healthy. Beef is a top source of well-absorbed heme iron and iron is needed to make the feel-good hormone serotonin. So there's a wide variety there, not all created equal. The amount of protein in these foods vary as well. So it's really important to try and have a mix, I would say, of plant and animal-based foods and know that if you're really trying to focus on getting enough protein, the animal foods are typically more rich in protein. So you would have to eat a few servings of plant-based proteins to get the same amount of protein that you would find in animal foods. Now that's on average, there's going to be some exceptions. Tofu, for example, is going to have, you know, a fair bit of protein as well. But it's also important to note that your daily protein needs are going to vary at different points of your life. Can you give us an example of that? So for each meal, you want to aim for about a quarter of your plate coming from protein. That's for optimal use. So you want to spread it out throughout the day. You don't eat all your protein at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. Your body is waiting for those amino acids throughout the day. A good ballpark is 25 to 30 grams per meal. You do not need to add up, you know, the grams, but I know sometimes people find that helpful. What's the meal most shortchanged for protein? It is breakfast. So I recommend people start there. And for sure, try to include a little bit of protein in your snacks. It's going to help you feel fuller longer. Carol, is it possible to have too much protein in your diet? When we look at the Canadian data, we find that Canadians are eating on the lower end of what's recommended for good health for protein. And I want to add as well that Currently, the emerging research is showing that the recommended amount of protein is actually probably not even enough for optimal living, healthy living and healthy aging in particular. And so I'm probably going to say here that I think there's a good chance that those protein recommendations are going to be increasing in the future. So we're not eating too much protein. We're, you know, on the lower end. What about saturated fat in some meats? Um, Obviously, that that is something that came up many years ago. Is that something that's still a concern? That evidence came out in the 1950s, and it was always weak evidence. And more recently, there has been a decade of really solid, big studies. I'm talking global studies, including like half a million people that are followed for 12 years, those um, solid methodological studies. And what they're concluding is that saturated fat is really not connected with cardiovascular disease or even mortality, period. Uh, Canadians are eating about the same amount of saturated fat as what is recommended by the WHO, the World Health Organization. That's about 10% of our calories coming from saturated fat. They say, don't exceed it. We're sitting right about there. And if you wonder where we're getting most of the saturated fat from our diet, you might think it's meat, but it's actually ultra processed foods. So these are foods that are not nutrient rich anyway. So whether you sit on one side of the fence or the other, I would say focus on cutting back on those foods that are not providing a lot of good nutritional value in your diet like the baked goods, like the fast foods, the prepared foods, and cut back there as opposed to cutting out or cutting back on a naturally nutrient-rich food like meats. Obviously, lots of conversation around grocery bills and the increasing costs of feeding our families. And the price of meat has been going up as well. It's noticeable on that bill. So, Carol, maybe uh, you could tell us about some ways to stretch our food dollar further while still eating and enjoying meat. Meats are, yes, a little bit more expensive. Let's be honest, they're the more expensive item at the grocery store, but they're also one of the most nutritious. So I always encourage people to look at the foods that they're buying. Again, can you cut back on those sweetened cereals, pop chips and candies, um, sweetened baked goods to make a little bit more room for naturally nutrient-rich foods? Can you also blend and extend? And I know that the Canadian Food Focus website's got some great resources and recipes on that. What do I mean by that? Well, that's taking your ground beef and adding things like mushrooms or maybe even 
grated carrots or beans or lentils so that you're making that meat go farther. So you could imagine making tacos that have got some ground beef and some lentils in it, or maybe a soup that has got a lot of vegetables and just enough meat to get the amount of protein that you need. Meat is very, very nutritious. You don't need a huge portion to get absolutely good nutrition. About the size of a deck of cards or the palm of your hand is typically okay for most people. Carol Harrison is a nationally known registered dietitian. And here are the top agriculture stories for the week of February 12, 2024. The 2024 cash advance application forms were made available. Farmers can submit the paperwork now and have access to the money April 1st. The big difference between the 2023 and 2024 programs is the amount of interest-free money available. It was a one-time amount of 350000 interest-free available in 23, with 2020 going back to the traditional $100,000 interest-free. Dave Gallant is with the Canadian Canola Growers Association. It's one of the organizations that administers the cash advance on behalf of the federal government. Farmers can apply for advances on over 50 commodities, including field crops, large and small livestock, honey, and organic commodities. Amendments to Bill C-234 will cost Canadian farmers nearly $90 million a year, according to a report by the Parliamentary Budget Officer. The PDO provides independent economic and financial analysis in Canada's Parliament. Under the version of the bill that was heavily amended in the Senate, farmers would have saved $115 million in carbon taxes by 2026. The new version will reduce that saving to just $26 million a year by the same date. The Senate amendments passed December 12th removed exemptions for fuel used to heat or cool buildings used to raise and house livestock or crops. A further amendment lowered the sunset period of the bill from eight years to three. The original bill would have lasted until 2030, but the amended version will only run until 2026. That original bill passed 176 to 146 in the House of Commons. Agricultural Financial Services Corporation in Alberta is looking for cow-calf producers to participate in a pilot project that will look at how to fully capture input costs under the AgriStability program. This follows a review of AgriStability conducted by the organization last year, focusing on how to make it more responsive to producers' needs. Alberta producers don't have to be in AgriStability to be eligible for the pilot, but you do need accurate historical income and expense reporting, as well as year-end inventory reporting. The agriculture industry relies on a consistent, reliable source of fresh water. The House of Commons Environment Committee is studying fresh water. Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities President Ray Orb told the committee all levels of government need to collaborate. Orb shared his concerns about the apparent duplication with the Canada Water Agency, given Saskatchewan already has its own water security agency. Orb acknowledged that water and water quality is a multi-jurisdictional issue and anticipates the federal agency will need transparency from the provinces to achieve a strong working relationship. Orb also said the Lake Diefenbaker Irrigation Project is an example of potential collaboration between the federal and provincial governments.
A U.S. court has pulled the Environmental Protection Agency's over-the-top registration of three products containing dicamba, Extendamax, Ingenia, and Tavium. The court found the EPA violated the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, that it failed to follow notice and comment requirements when granting its approval for these products on soybeans and cotton in 2020. A spokesperson for Bayer says a recent court ruling in the U.S. has no impact on Canada's use or registration of Roundup Extend 2, Extendamax 2 herbicide with vapor grip technology. The American Soybean Association said the ruling would impact more than 50 million acres of dicamba-tolerant soybeans and cotton. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to tell your friends and subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.